Welcome to Scientist Soundwaves. I'm Ishtanetra Siva and I will be your host for today. Drug deliveries are technologies engineered in order to deliver pharmaceutical compounds to spe specific target areas in our bodies. The implementation of such systems is essential as it can ensure that the target site can receive the required amount of the compound. However, there are various barriers to effective drug delivery. For instance, nucleic acid drugs such as RNA have the ability to positively change the field of medicine. However, they quickly degrade in our bodies. Additionally, injection is the primary method of drug delivery for proteins and other macromolecule-braced drugs. These are painful, resulting in patient discomfort. Therefore, drug delivery is becoming a rising area of research within the scientific community and often results in the intersection of biology and engineering with new innovations such as biodegradable lipid nanoparticles. Today, we are eager to invite Professor Catherine Ann Whitehead, an Associate Professor of Chemical Engineering and Biomedical Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. She was named as one of the Brilliant Ten by Popular Science in 2015 and was awarded the Cellular and Molecular Bioengineering Young Innovator Award in 2016. In today's episode, Professor Whitehead will be sharing with us about lipid nanoparticles and drug delivery. Her research entails RNA drug delivery mechanisms and the oral delivery of macromolecules. Welcome to Scientist Sandwich, Professor Whitehead. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. Firstly, your research has contributed vastly to the field of lipid nanoparticles. In drug delivery and bioengineering, why would nanoparticles revolutionize science, particularly the field of vaccinology? There are many, uh, there are many types of therapies where we need to do what's called intracellular delivery, um, which is where we deliver therapeutics inside of cells. And this can be used to treat a variety of different conditions. Uh, cancer therapeutics is one area where we want to get our uh, therapeutics inside of the cells. And another more recently in the news are different types of nucleic acid technologies, including messenger RNA that's used in our COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, right now, FDA approved uh, the Moderna and BioNTech Pfizer. Uh, vaccines. And so anytime we need to get a drug inside of the cell, uh, you're typically going to want to use a nanoparticle. And that's because we need to use something that's significantly smaller than the cell. Depending on what type of cell we would like to get our drug into, uh, those cells can range from one to say uh, 10 nanometer, or sorry, one to 10 microns in diameter. And so we need something smaller than that. So nanoparticles that are used for drug delivery are usually about 100 nanometers in diameter. So that will give us anywhere from uh, one to two orders of magnitude difference so that we can get these inside of the cell. Thank you. That was really interesting. And some of your research papers have also discussed packaging small interfering RNAs into these lipid nanoparticles. What exactly are small interfering RNAs and what is their role in therapeutics and drug delivery? Yes, uh, small interfering RNAs, which I'll refer to as siRNAs are really interesting. And they were really the one of the first types of RNA that was considered as a potential therapeutic um, at least about a decade before 
messenger RNA really became a little bit more mainstream. And so the use of siRNAs is predicated upon a Nobel Prize winning discovery in 1998 uh, that basically discovered this mechanism inside of mammalian cells that we call the RNA interference mechanism. And this mechanism evolved in our cells to help protect us against viruses. However, um, what we've been able to do is to essentially use that process, uh, not to protect us from viruses, but to um, achieve different manipulation of our genes. So what happens in RNA interference is that typically you'd have a double-stranded RNA come into the cell. Um, this is important because uh, most mammalian RNAs, those are gonna be single-stranded, whereas the viral uh, RNA is double-stranded. And so these long pieces of RNA come into our cells. Uh, our cells know that this is a foreign material. And so what they do is they chop it into small pieces um, of that double-stranded RNA, and then it unwinds the two pieces and there's a protein complex that binds um, and escorts that uh, piece of, uh, that single-stranded piece of RNA around to try to find a match in our messenger RNA. And so that messenger RNA is what encodes proteins. And if a virus has infected us, uh, there's mRNA that encodes the viral proteins. And we do not want that messenger RNA to be expressed because it will help the virus replicate. So it's really cool. Um, this protein will then uh, escort this siRNA around looking for a piece of messenger RNA to which it's complementary. And if it finds a complementary piece, it's usually because that viral mRNA is present. And so the protein then mediates the cleavage or the cutting of that messenger RNA. And once it's cut, it can't be translated into protein anymore. So basically we have a double-stranded RNA that comes into the cell and our cell's response is to suppress the expression of the genes that are associated with that um, viral signature. So in the case of RNA interference as a therapeutic, um, we're not protecting ourselves from viruses, but we can use it as a mechanism by which we cleave that messenger RNA and turn down the expression of different types of genes and proteins. And this is desirable because some diseases are caused by too much of a particular protein and siRNA can be used as a mechanism to fix that. So what we do is we look at the messenger RNA sequence of the protein that we'd like to you know, decrease the expression of it. And we design siRNAs that are complementary to those target messenger RNA sequences. And then as long as we can get our siRNA into the cell, which is the de delivery problem that my lab and others have been trying to address for a couple decades now, uh, once that siRNA is inside, it will make use of that RNA interference machinery that's already in there and downregulate the expression of the gene that we don't want. Let's see, did I answer your full question? 
Yes. Um, so we can treat numerous different diseases. The first FDA approved siRNA uh, drug came from Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, and they have used it to treat um, a particular type of liver disease that results in the accumulation of a protein that we don't want to accumulate, and it can cause uh, long-term problems and death. So they, for example, because it's easiest to get a siRNA to the liver, they have a number of different products that are in the pipeline where they deliver siRNA to the liver and they're able to treat a variety of diseases. Thank you, Professor Whitehead. And it's very interesting to see the current applications of siRNA in our medical field as well. And leading on from our previous discussion of lipid nanoparticles, what are the structures and ingredients that constitute lipid nanoparticles and what are their roles? Sure, so the typical lipid nanoparticle, um, it can, we, we might change the formulation a bit, but it can be used to deliver different types of RNAs. So in addition to whatever RNA we have, there are usually four other ingredients in the particle. And this is the case for the mRNA vaccines that I previously mentioned. So the, let's see what order. Um, so first there are phospholipids. There are naturally occurring phospholipids in our particles. And those particle or those phospholipids are there to provide some organization to our lipid nanoparticles. Um, so if you look at phospholipids in our cell membranes, which are bilayers, they basically help to form that bilayer because the phospholipids have a hydrophilic section and they also have hydrophobic tails. And so when you put a bunch of them together in water, they're going to self-assemble into this uh, rather beautiful structure with your head groups, which are the hydrophilic portions facing the water. So the inside and outside of the cell and then the hydrophobic tails together in the middle. And so they serve a similar purpose inside of lipid nanoparticles. They provide that organization through hydrophobic, hydrophilic interactions. So that's one of our naturally occurring molecules. Another is cholesterol. Uh, so cholesterol is also incredibly important in our cell membranes. It provides structural rigidity to these particles. So if we didn't have that in our membranes, these phospholipids, they are very loosey-goosey and they would readily fall apart. Um, so what we need are stiff hydrophobic molecules that will come in there and kind of fill in the gaps uh, in those hydrophobic tails, which are otherwise moving around too much. And cholesterol is great for that. It's quite hydrophobic and it has a number of uh, rings inside of it that make it quite bulky. It's very interesting. If we didn't have cholesterol in our cell membranes, literally our entire bodies would be a pile of goo. So uh, cholesterol is super important for giving us structure, our cells structure and stability, and they do something very similar in the lipid nanoparticles. So then we have um, one of the most important ingredients. I suppose they're all important, but there's, there's something called an ionizable lipid. And this particular lipid is considered ionizable because when we inject our particles into the bloodstream, uh, there's a neutral pH there. And so these ionizable lipids are not charged at that pH. And the lack of charge contributes to their safety profile. 
it's generally accepted that when you have something that's cationic in the bloodstream, it can cause more toxicity. So it's nice that we have it neutral in the bloodstream, but then when it enters the cell, it enters into a part of the cell called an endosome and the pH of that endosome will begin to drop, uh, let's say to about a pH of five. And these ionizable lipids through that dropping in the pH, they will begin to take on a positive charge. That positive charge is important to help them get out of the endosome and into the cytoplasm of the cell, which is where the RNA needs to be in order for it to work. So these ionizable lipids are made in a lab uh, and scientists around the world have tested tens of thousands of these different ionizable lipids to find ones that are effective at delivering RNA. And because they tend to be developed by labs and by companies, academic labs as well, uh, they're typically proprietary to the company that has identified them. Um, so for example, the Moderna COVID-19 vaccines and the BioNTech vaccines, those two companies identified different ionizable lipids. They're actually very similar in structure at the end of the day, um, which helps basically to confirm that that structure is quite good um, to independent groups of scientists uh, coming up with fairly closely related lipids. So then there's one more uh, lipid ingredient. It's called polyethylene glycol, and this one is a polymer. Um, this polymer has been FDA approved for several decades um, in various types of drugs, and it can help increase the stability of different drug formulations in our bloodstream, uh, and it can also prevent uh, gobbling up these particles by our immune cells like macrophages and, and other phagocytic cells. So um, PEG essentially looks a little bit like water. And so it disguises the particle from the immune system a bit. They don't pay attention to it as much as if we had the ionizable lipid, for example, on the surface, which our body knows uh, is definitely, it does not belong. So that's what the PEG is good for. Um, the PEG itself is hydrophilic, and so it actually hangs out on the exterior of the particle because the particle is pretty hydrophobic. Um, but we attach it to the particle, um, we attach that PEG chain to a hydrophobic lipid tail. And that lipid tail then is able to essentially insert itself into the hydrophobic lipid nanoparticle. So you may have heard in the news about some of the, the allergies to the vaccines. And you know the evidence isn't entirely clear yet, but there, there is some evidence that PEG can be contributing to those allergic reactions. Uh, it turns out that PEG is in many different products uh, that humans are regularly exposed to. These include some household products, cosmetics, um, anybody who's ever taken Miralax, um, other laxatives, that's PEG. That's the exact same PEG that is in our lipid nanoparticles. And so many of us have been exposed and a very small percentage of us will develop antibodies against that PEG, which would then contribute to an allergic response uh, in a later exposure, for example, in the vaccines. 
And everybody's immune system is different. So while most of us do not have these allergic responses, there are a few who do, uh, just the same way that some of us are allergic to other things that uh, we shouldn't be like latex. So um, altogether, those are our ingredients. Every single one of them is important for that functionality of not just escorting the particle uh, to the cell without it getting cleared from our systems prematurely, but also then that uptake process into the cell and delivery of the RNA into the cytoplasm where it can work. That is incredibly fascinating, Professor, and it's so amazing to see how each of these individual parts come together to create this lipid nanoparticle, which in itself is such a small particle. I understand that your laboratory also researches the oral delivery of therapeutic compounds. If lipid nanoparticles were to be orally consumed, what would happen to the particles in the gastrointestinal tract? Sure, so we've done a bit of work in my lab and others are now doing um, work as well because this is a area of increased interest, right? So what, what would it be like if we could avoid injection of our lipid nanoparticles and instead be able to ingest them? Uh, the problem with that is that our gastrointestinal tracts tend to be quite harsh to different types of macromolecular drugs which include nucleic acids and also proteins. Uh, this is because our GI tracts are designed to break down uh, macromolecular products like this and not help them get into the body um, unscathed. So the first thing that happens is these particles will enter into the stomach. And we've shown that the stomach acids and the uh, enzymes that are present there they kind of gunk up these lipid nanoparticles and begin to cause some de chemical degradation. And so that, um, you know, you're not going to have particles after that that are able to work properly. Fortunately, there are some ways around the stomach. You can, for example, load lipid nanoparticles into a capsule that is coated with a pH sensitive polymer. And that polymer does not degrade in the acidic contents of the stomach. Uh, but then when the capsule passes on into our small intestines, uh, the pH there is closer to neutral depending on how far along in the intestine you go. The beginning of it is about a pH of 5.5 and it moves up to a 7.5. So we can use our capsules to have our lipid nanoparticles enter the small intestine. They come out there, the pH is more neutral and they no longer you know, face those issues they did in the stomach. Now, one of the challenges is to uh, get our nanoparticles through the mucus. So we have a really nice mucus layer, a mucosal layer in our intestines, and that um, helps basically to prevent uh, different types of bacteria and other harmful agents getting through to our actual intestinal cells and potentially being uptaken into our bodies. However, it's a delivery barrier, right? And so depending on the size of our nanoparticles and the charge of our nanoparticles, sometimes these get caught up in the mucus and are not able to get all the way through. So uh, there are you know, ways to adjust your formulation to be able to move through the mucus, at least to get enough of the nanoparticles through the mucus, that then they can either access the cells that are in the gastrointestinal tract 
or to actually move across those cells and be uptaken into the bloodstream of the individual. And so in some cases, you might want to treat diseases of the intestine, uh, different types of intestinal cancer or other intestinal diseases, um, perhaps leaky gut diseases, uh, such as inflammatory bowel disease. So in these cases, you actually want that local delivery inside of the gastrointestinal tract. But if you are able to make it across that barrier and get into the bloodstream, you know, then the, the sky is kind of the limit in terms of where these particles could go. It's still most frequent for them to affect the liver because the bloodstream in our intestines goes directly to the liver. So it's kind of like the first stop and it's your best chance of having um, an oral RNA therapeutic work uh, in your, the systemic portion of your body. Additionally, the Whitehead Laboratory has focused upon using nanotherapeutics to treat specific disorders. One of them specifically was mantle cell lymphoma. Why would nanoparticles be more desirable as opposed to conventional treatment methods, such as chemotherapy for this cancer specifically? Sure. So it's not clear that nanoparticles would necessarily be better uh, than some of the chemotherapeutics. However, it is known that mantle cell lymphoma, uh, which is a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, it's rather deadly. And that's because uh, it can usually be treated well one time, but it tends to come back. And every time it comes back, it's more resistant to some of the chemotherapeutics that have already been used. Uh, and ev eventually the patient will succumb to the disease. Um, what is known about lymphoma is that it responds very well by additional therapeutics that have different mechanism of action compared to the other drugs. And so you're kind of hitting the lymphoma from multiple different angles to try to really uh, repress the growth and expression of those cells. And that's important because it's difficult to kill cancer cells without killing the healthy cells inside of our body. So if you really come at it from multiple directions, it gives you a better chance of being selective uh, in that uh, cell killing ability. So we thought it would be interesting to, you know, take the normal chemotherapeutics and think about adding another mechanism of action to kill these cells, which would be RNA interference, which I uh, spoke about before. So at the time we were beginning that work, you know, others had not attempted to use siRNA therapeutics to treat mantle cell lymphoma. Um, so we went about it by identifying several genes that had been identified as responsible for the proliferation of these cancer cells. And we examined what would happen uh, to the cancer cells in a dish. So we looked at these in vitro and cell culture. And we ask the question, what happens when we silence these different genes? Uh, do the cells become more apoptotic? Um, do they stop growing and proliferating as much as they did before? And what we found was that three different genes, they were each contributing to this process. And what was really cool was that we were able to use a lipid nanoparticle that was potent enough at delivery that we could actually deliver siRNAs um, for all three of these gene targets at once. 
And we saw that when we silenced all three of these gene targets, we had really nice apoptosis levels within these lymphoma cells. And so our hope then is that if you can take an siRNA therapeutic and add it in to the treatment regimen that already exists for mantle cell lymphoma, you could have better survival um, and better, you know, just better suppression of the cancer in the first place. Thank you, Professor. That was really interesting. And finally, with the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen such rapid responses with vaccines, especially with novel methods such as the new mRNA vaccines. With such positive outcomes, what is the future of medical therapeutics? Sure, so I'll speak uh, specifically to mRNA therapeutics, and uh, they've been in development in general for about 10 years now or so. Um, there have kind of been two different efforts to get us to the place that we can use them. Uh, one is on the delivery side. How do we develop different types of particles that are able to deliver the messenger RNA into the cytoplasm of cells? Um, but then separately, messenger RNA that is outside of our cells um, is often treated as a foreign molecule by our immune system. Even once it gets into our cell, uh, it often have marker, has markers that alert our immune system that it shouldn't be there. And when our immune system responds to that messenger RNA that shouldn't be there, it basically turns it off and the messenger RNA won't work. So separately, there have been people who have been investigating, how do we change the structure of those messenger RNAs and how exactly do we design those sequences so that we won't have these immune responses uh, to the, the presence of messenger RNA and therefore the messenger RNA will be properly translated into protein and will be able to work. So those, those two types of science were happening side by side. Unfortunately, we're now at a point where a lot of that has been figured out, as was the case with the COVID-19 vaccines. So we, we have seen such excellent outcomes there. And what's really cool about uh, this technology being deployed in so many people um, is that we should now uh, see more comfort, um, particularly by the FDA, investors, and in patients, um, more comfort with the concept of using this type of therapeutic to treat different types of disease in addition to being used as vaccines. Now, for a long time, because it's a new type of therapeutics, people have been considering it as something that might be used only for niche diseases, diseases for which there's no other therapeutic option. And you know, I think that's a little bit because of the lack of comfort with this new type of therapy. Um, and concerns that there might be toxicity either long-term um, or short-term. So now we have all this evidence that at least for these vaccines, we don't seem to be having any types of long-term or short-term problems. Of course, you know, we have to go out further in terms of uh, looking at even longer-term safety, but so far the data look rather nice. So that'll help open the gates for using messenger RNA for other types of therapeutics. One of the most obvious types is called protein replacement therapy, 
Uh, this, this would be a good thing if we either have not enough of a particular protein being made inside of our cells, or sometimes our genes encode a mutated version of a protein. And this mutated version doesn't work properly. And sometimes it also uh, accumulates. And so you can use messenger RNA to basically give ourselves the instructions for the correct protein, the protein that we want and is functional. So if you can do that, you deliver your messenger RNA, the protein of interest starts being expressed and you can alleviate some of those disease symptoms. Um, then we have the vaccines. We have other types of therapeutics. Uh, for example, this can be used to achieve gene editing as well. Um, so a lot of messenger RNA therapeutics involve upregulation of a particular gene, but using gene editing, you can also reduce the expression of a gene and the associated protein. And this is pretty cool uh, that we can use messenger RNA to do it because some of the previous methods, they involved um, basically expressing a nuclease that's going to be permanent inside of our cells. And nucleases can go around and cut your DNA. It can cut the DNA in the way that we want uh, for the therapy, but then it can also sometimes cut DNA that we don't want it to cut. So the cool thing about using messenger RNA is that the messenger RNA will produce that nuclease protein only for a very short period of time, basically just long enough for it to do its job. Uh, and then it's cleared from the system. So while the gene editing effects in the DNA will be permanent, uh, there's much less chance of that nuclease um, you know, staying around for a long time and causing injury to other parts of our DNA. So those are just some of the areas that might open up um, as we continue to explore messenger RNA therapeutics. I think the future is pretty bright in that regard. Thank you, Professor. That was really riveting. And thank you so much for joining us as well, Professor Whitehead. It's been fantastic having you on our podcast. It's been such a pleasure to be with you. And to the audience, if you would like to ask us a question about today's podcast or would like to offer your expertise and join us as a guest speaker, please email us at the link in the description box. Thank you for supporting our new podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed listening to today's session. Stay safe and see you soon.